Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their game design convention Metatopia at Metatopia Online 2020. These panels have also been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and moderators at this event. Now, let's get to it. Episode 318. A discussion about transformative LARPing. Presented by Chance Feldstein, Erica Skirpin, Jessica Comstock, and John Cole. Transformative LARP is the idea that role-playing can be a powerful tool to help participants become more self-aware, to process real-life experiences in a community that feels safe, transform their lives and the world around them for the better. Not just in the moment, but afterwards in a way that extends into their real lives. That's the definition of transformational LARPing that we're working with. And so, Twitch chat, I would like you to talk about how you have been transformed by a role-playing game or a LARP that you've played. And we'll sort of dig into those. Uh, our moderator will tell us a little bit about it afterwards. But first, I want to introduce these incredible panelists. Specifically, they will introduce themselves with their names, their pronouns if they'd like, and uh, some of the reasons that make them super exciting people to speak on this panel. Go right ahead. My name's Chance Feldstein. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. I am, um, I guess I think of myself as a big geek uh, regarding um, transformative LARPing and, and role-playing in general. Um, I first tried to write a book on it when I was more properly supposed to be studying in college and ended up dropping out because I, you know, my head was not in the right place for college at that time. Uh, but I did end up doing some tabletop writing and later on some LARP writing, for mostly for the Golden Cover Challenge. And... Um, I am. I I, re I recently finished a uh, a BS in psychology, which was uh, my final project was all about games, and I'm planning to start a master's in drama therapy in uh, next summer. So um, I'm happy to be here. Uh, I I pitched this the idea for this uh, talk last year, and uh, Avi said that maybe it would be better for the next year. So here we are. Thank you all for being here. Yeah. Thank you, Chance. My name is Erica Skirpin. My pronouns are she, her. Uh, I run the blog The Space Between Stories, which is a game all about, or a game, a blog all about narrative LARPing and transformative LARPing and how to bring LARP into theater, into real life. I'm also the lead designer of a game called Velvet Noir, which some people have called transformative. And I'm an American LARP designer. I've been working in the LARP industry for almost 20 years now, which is terrifying and awesome. And, um, I really believe that LARPing can be transformative and therapeutic, and it shouldn't be therapy. So that's why this panel is important. Um, I am Jess Comstock, they, them, and I, oh, it's always weird whenever people are like, say why you're qualified to talk about this. I, um, I tend to work on a lot of different LARPs as far as uh, safety and uh, with a focus toward uh, inclusion, inclusion and lifting marginalized voices into places and outside of that I also um launched a blog back in March called Triple Threat LARPer talking about um race relations in uh, LARP as well as being a sensitivity and um content editor for various games tabletop LARP parlor and all other things Oh my goodness Metatopians we are so spoiled with these three and look it's me John Cole I use he him pronouns and I was one of the lead organizers for Just a Little Love in USA 2017, a LARP that was described by many as transformative. I also write live action games about taboo subjects like uh, polyamory and abortion and healing from trauma uh, that have, again, been described as, but not necessarily intended as, super transformational. I will be the junior moderator, but let me now please introduce to you Laura, our real deal big moderator, who is going to take your questions in the chat after 40 minutes have elipsed. Um, and also will tell us what the chat has said right now. Uh, hi, I'm Laura Boylan, they, them. Um, we haven't gotten much from uh, chat yet, but anybody who'd like to leave a question, if you could put question in uh, all caps at the beginning, I will put it on a list and we'll see what we can get to the panelists. Thank you. Okay. 
Well, panelists, I'm going to jump right in with a heavy-duty LARP question. Bleed, uh, a topic uh, first discussed by Emily Kerr Boss, is often thought of as a negative thing, something to be sort of managed like a risk. But Erica, I know that you have a different view. Can you please define the term bleed and tell us why it might be positive under some circumstances? Absolutely. Bleed is when the feelings, emotions, experiences you had in a LARP bleed through into your real life and your real person. It is often considered negative because people will be like, oh, I fell in love in character with this character. Now I suddenly want to date that person. I don't even know who that person is. Or I had a really crushing experience at this LARP and now I can't get out of this depression cycle because I've kept all of those negative emotions in me. And so, yes, bleed can be very negative. But the actual term is just when LARP has bled through into real life. So those can have positive transformations. Also, um, I wrote a blog about one of my most transformative bleed experiences when like, I'm a very high femme person and I've been taught to practice femininity in a way that was very delicate and very women are fragile flowers and things like that. And I didn't have any sort of understanding of what like badass femininity is and how you can be high femme and butch or high feminine and kick ass and all of like the Xena warrior princess. I didn't understand it. And then I went to this LARP, which was like a magic school LARP. It was not meant to be transformative, but I played a very high femme, high punk, fuck you. I am tough. I'm here in like shorts and combat boots with this like mohawk hair style and fuck the government, fuck the man. I hope we can swear on these panels. <laughs> but um, I played character and, uh, and I came away from the LARP and I was like, I felt the most feminine. I felt in ages and I didn't wear a dress for the whole like 48 hours of this LARP. Mm -hmm. Oh, women can be badass and butch and women. You can still be feminine and kick ass and take names and embrace your femininity. And I didn't, I didn't comprehend it until I lived in that character's body for 48 hours who totally embraced her femininity. And if anybody told her she had to put on a dress, fuck them. And then suddenly that bled through into my real life and I can embrace femininity and feminism in a lot of different ways. I couldn't before that LARP. So even though I didn't plan on being transformed there because of that LARP's bleed, I changed my take with femininity and I'm really happy for that character. And so there are times where you can purposefully chase bleed to figure out more things about yourself as a person, or you can say, yes, this is bleedy. This is because of a LARP character, but it's made me a better person and made me understand myself. So I'm going to embrace it. I'm not going to try to cut that bleed out of myself and ignore it. So those are my thoughts. Uh-huh. Uh, feel free to weigh in, Chance or Jess, if that sparks something for you. So um, what, it, what it brings up for me is that I played a different run of the same Magic School game and had a, a transformative kind of experience. It was actually uh, my first LARP. I'm purposefully avoiding the year because I'm a baby. But um, it, uh, <laughs> it, what it, what it gave me was like, it's I, a combination of bleed in both ways because it, it made it able for me to, um, I made a joke on my Facebook status not too long after that of like, oh, hey, after spending 48 hours playing this character, who does not tolerate being looked down on because of where they were born and who their parents were, suddenly I can't tolerate racists in my life anymore. Um, and uh, somebody who was like a friend of mine at the time and is a former staff member of that game commented, oh no, it's almost like LARP taught you that it's okay to have self-worth. And, um, you know, I was in my late 20s at the time. I'm like, how did this take so long and take something to click and it was being in a headspace that wasn't mine for a couple of days to be like oh there's that there's that connection i'm also a big proponent of um cross bleed which is when your real life emotions and issues are going to bleed through into your larp character and i sure. still think that that's going to be the way that you can make games more enjoyable for yourself and everybody around um i'm a huge advocate i call it playing fast and loose with the traumas is I'm a huge advocate of taking like the things that affect you in real life and like digging in as deep as you can in order to get the most out of it. And I encourage bleed because if you leave a LARP after a, a day or a weekend feeling exactly the same, what was the point? 
So I'm hearing from Jess and Erica something that's been talked about by game scholar Janiah Kemper, uh, emancipatory bleed. Uh, that is like hacking your own individual LARP experience to create a transformational experience. But the people in this room are hardcore LARP designers, and the people out there on Twitch are also game designers as well. So Chance, I understand that you know a little something about the alchemy of design and can start to shift us from the personal transformation into systematizing that for a larger group of people. I can say a bit. I mean, I, I, I definitely have more experience with, um, with the alchemy or transformation of, um, of games as a player. But over the last few years, I've definitely I've tried to write some games that are intended to help people um, explore aspects of their personalities or uh, archetypes they connect with or things like that. Um, I forgot to mention my website earlier is alchemicalgaming.com. That's the uh, place where I try to collect all of the, um, the articles I find about um, different ways that LARPing or, or role-playing has transformed people. Um, and also I write a little bit of my own stuff on it. So in any case... Um, Remind me what the question was. <laughs> this is a question for all you beautiful designers, uh, which is to say, we've talked about transformation on sort of a personal basis. What distinguishes a transformational LARP from just any old LARP that someone goes to and kind of Jess-style LARP hacks their way, plays fast and loose with the trauma to make sure that they have a really gripping experience? What distinguishes a capital T transformational LARP from a run-of-the-mill LARP? Hmm. I, mean, I don't want to cut in, chance off. Go. Yeah, that's true. I have feelings, but I know you do too. <laughs> I know. I'm like. Yes. I'm not. I don't know if I can answer this question, but I can talk about a little bit about one that I wrote, and maybe you can tell me why it's transform transformative. Yeah. I mean. Okay. So for yeah. Living Games in 2018, which where we met, I think you, John. Um, mm -hmm. I did. I I wanted to do a really simple game that would be really positive and that would just, in maybe 15 minutes, show people some transformative aspects of LARPing that they might not be familiar with. We had a group of about six or seven people, and the game is called um, Cerebral Cortex Speed Dating. Uh, it's not a, it's not exactly a speed dating game, but it was the best title I could come up with at the time. I later redid it as a pagan game called uh, Whose Deity Is It Anyway, which I think is a better title. Uh, anyway, um, so the idea is uh, there's this kid who is coming of age, um, like a teenager, unspecified gender, and um, in this kid's mind there are a bunch of either fictional characters or historical characters who are potential role models for this kid. And each player chooses their own favorite um, role model. So like, I actually played this with my parents, and... Um, my mom wanted to play Hillary Clinton, but her friend had already chosen Hillary Clinton, so she ended up playing Frida Kahlo instead. And um, my dad was Gandhi, and um, I think my dad ended up winning because he was Gandhi. In any case, it doesn't really matter who wins. The idea is um, you spend like 90 minutes interviewing each other as these characters and asking each other things that your character would want to know. And first of all, you get a taste of being in character if you've never role-played before. But also at the end, um, everyone, everyone, you vote as your character and um, as, as far as who's the best role model. And some people, sometimes people are surprised that like, they thought they would vote for someone, but it turns out that um, you know, Frida Kahlo wanted them to vote for someone else. And so they voted for someone else. But most importantly, like, at the end, the idea is not so much who wins, which is sort of a distraction, ultimately, from the real point, which is, um, like, what did you learn about why you identify with this person? And, like, what did you learn about why other people identify with their characters? And, um, you know, what does that tell you about yourself and about the people you're playing with? All right. Designer goggles on, designer hats on, designer uh, one-piece jumpsuits on. Uh, why is this a, a transformational LARP? Um... So I, I think that can be like very transformational, especially if you're playing with people who are not as familiar with LARP as a whole. I find that a lot of people find whatever their first character-driven LARP to be very, very transformative. Like, sure. and it's it's different than people who are like, oh, I've met people who have like, oh, I've been like, you know, every weekend buffer LARPing for every for years. And it wasn't until I went to a first character-driven game that I, I felt it was transformative. 
which is why I make that distinction is like the first character driven LARP tends to be transformative, but also like accessing the headspace of somebody that you admire and like trying to get into that can be very transformative to give you a bit of a perspective when it comes to that person. Cause when you're trying to access a person in order to play them, they are no longer just an idea. You have to make them. A um, so you need to get into the depth of like why they do what they do. And that can be kind of like magically overwhelming in its own right. But, I mean, I'm sure like everyone who's lurked in like longer games has had those moments where like a character will kind of spring forth out of you. And in your head, you're like, I didn't know I was going to do that. <laughs> um, so I think that um, those those moments can be like super transformative because it kind of breaks down this performance barrier that all people have on how we need to navigate the world and makes you feel a little bit more free to be like, oh, I just like went with my first instinct and, you know, no fireballs came down from the sky. <laughs> I think a part of why that game works and going back to when we were talking about this panel, uh, it had come up in our chat of should people know that they're going into a transformative transformative LARP or to just spring it on them. And I was very much like, no, they have to know like that is not fair. And I think we all agreed that it is unfair to spring onto somebody. You were going to have this very emotional transformative experience. But the more I thought about that, the more I realized with Velvet Noir, which we are trying to be transformative and other emergent LARP spaces like that, part of the transformative success is setting up a space where you've specifically told people you were coming in to have this kind of experience. And I don't know people one-on-one. -on -one. I can't write how to transform every single player in that game. I am the most successful as a transformative LARP designer when I'm saying, we've set up a sandbox for you to specifically experience a transformation in this genre or this setting or this way. So that is the transformation of a young person going through a lot of thoughts and a lot of spaces and embracing what matters to them. You've set them up for success going, they need to think about these things and examine in those things and embrace them. So they go in prepared to being transformed and kind of chase that bleed. We talk about chasing bleed, but if you're specifically chasing bleed to transform, you one can control your bleed a little bit better because you've set up the box for yourself. And two, you can try to find a transformative experience in a specific way it's been designed to do. So that LARP is set up to let people succeed in transforming. And I try to set up emergent LARPs. That's what we call our style of LARPing, where it's the, here's your sandbox. Here's some tools to play with. We want you to transform. We want you to have some deep narrative experience, but you've got to chase it yourself. You're going to know what kind of story is going to make your brain change and make your emotions change way better than our meager staff members. There's a hundred of you and there's 20 of us. We're not going to know. So chase your bleed, chase your transformation. We're going to give you all of the safety tools and train you like we just knows we train safety more than anything else going into this LARP. Cause it's the, yeah. if you do transform, you're going to have a lot of feelings about it. And sometimes those feelings aren't going to be good. And sometimes you're going to hit limits you didn't expect to hit. So when you start chasing that bleed, if you go a little too far, here's how you pull yourself back. Here's how you get yourself to a safe place again. And uh, I've had a lot of LARPers say, we know we can pursue that a bit more and pursue transformation more because there are so many things to catch us if we go a little too far. So specifically designing a box where you tell people this is meant to be transformative and here's how you do it safely and here is how you do it consensually because those people haven't consented to being your therapist. We all might go through a therapeutic experience, but they are not going to hold your hand through the whole thing. You have to do this safely for yourself. Here's your tools. Here's your box. Go. That is... The how you do a transformative LARP, in my humble opinion. Um, I my see brain, that I see that my brain was just like, amazing. yeah, we just like proper, we just give accurate and informative sex ed, but for LARP, you're going to do it, so do it safe. <laughs> <laughs> I have a follow-up question, if no one else was planning on one. Um, I, I had a little bit that I wanted to double back and talk oh, about when it comes to the idea of should somebody be aware 
of the space that they're going into being transformative, it's like a big yes, not just for their safety, but for the safety of everybody else around them, they have to know that it's transformative space. Because in order for a space, especially if it's a space dealing with really hard themes, in order for a space to be truly transformative for everybody equally, everybody's got to be on the same page. You know, if if we're all sitting down to have hard, rough conversations about, like, the nature of death or something, and one person's just there because they thought they got to be the edgy hot topic kid, they're going to make it unsafe for everybody else to go as deep as they want to go. So you need to make sure that everybody is on the same page as far as transformation. You had a kick-ass question for us, Chance. I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is, like, isn't any emotional or, um, or like, deeply character-based game potentially transformative? So do they, do they all need the, that warning, do you think? Yeah? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, so the reason, and the reason that I, I know that Erica agrees with me when we're both just like, yeah! It's because um, we've had to deal with the fallout of what happens when that warning's not given. Um, and there's there's something that I say to, and I've said it so many times to people that I've done when it comes to like sensitivity editing or content editing their games, especially games for people to come in when it's going to be dealing with topics that can be a little hard, real that mirror real world struggles is LARPers, gamers, nerds as a whole do not understand nuance. And if they think they do, they're wrong. You need to hold their hand and you need to tell them exactly what it's supposed to do because what you're doing there is you're entering clear communication. Even if they already knew and they're like, why are you telling me this a second time? You go, just wanted to make sure you got it. And if they didn't know, they have no reason to say that they didn't. So it is absolutely necessary that you tell people, hey, this is a transformative space. This is what we are trying to enable you to do. If that's not your speed, this might not be your game. And that's not a problem. Not every game is for everybody. I'm going to attempt to rephrase on what you said, Jess. Um, gamers can do nuance if they are properly scaffolded into the nuance zone. Otherwise, they'll be floundering like someone who's just picked up a buffer sword and doesn't know how to use it safely. And designing games for, like, a wide audience of people, I don't know who understands nuance and not. So I can't walk into any game that I'm writing for or staffing assuming that people have the same baseline knowledge as, like, myself, anyone here, anyone out in the world. you got to start from zero. Mm -hmm. John, I'm curious about your feelings. Like, you've had a lot of experience with this, too. You're not just here to be moderator. Like, what are your thoughts about... The questions at hand. Um, I'll pipe up briefly. Um, I think I might be more on the team of um, clearly label the outside of the box and then inside the experience itself make an invitation, but I, I, I can't honestly require people to get deep um, in a transformational fashion as opposed to I'm like, observe my pool of variegated depths. How deep shall we go today? Which I don't think is fundamentally different than what you folks have said, but I think I'm more of a door opener inviter rather than a, like, come to Velvet Noir, your shit will be rocked. Thinking of which, <laughs> let's imagine I've never heard of Velvet Noir and how cool it is. Can I get a maybe two or three sentence pitch about this LARP? Eric, it's your baby. Okay, yeah. Um, Velvet Noir is a LARP set in alternate history 1929 now united states and it was specifically designed to uh, uplift minority voices and examine the minority experience in the united states history so we play very close to the cuff and very close to really uncomfortable awful things that have happened in our country and are still actively happening in a lot of awful ways and um and going in it's the if you're a white person playing this LARP, you're here to learn how to be an ally and why you're probably a shitty ally in a lot of ways and what your ingrained racism is. And if you're not a white person playing this in LARP, we tried to make a sandbox for a place where uh, our various communities can have their voices uplifted and their stories told. And we've failed in a lot of ways. We've succeeded in a lot of really good ways, but we went in to tackle this huge, terrifying, untackled issue 
And my whole goal when like somebody sat me down and was like, Erica, design your dream LARP. And I'm like, I just want to hear from other voices that aren't my own. So I'm going to hire a lot of minority writers and see what we put out on the table, and which is what we did. Um, we didn't know what we were doing. So we had a lot of really good successes and we're in a lot of redesigns. And Jess is one of my lead staff members. So they are so good and have talked me through a lot of like, Erica, this was good. Erica, you fucked up. Um, and I'm like, yep, yep, I did. We're going to sit down and redesign that. And it's been for me, a transformative experience of going, I'm not perfect. First time, second or third time, isn't going to be perfect. We're going to look at the things that we've messed up and make it better the next iteration around and be thankful that we're a campaign game so we can keep trying again. Um, So Jess, you might have things to say. That's my Um, basic pitch. Thank you. So, like, going into Velvet Noir and being transformative, from my perspective, which is, you know, being a, a non-binary queer person of color, there's there's not a lot of, uh, I, there, there are not spaces at the LARP table made for me often. Um, and it is, it's the idea of, there's a difference between saying you can sit at a space that was clearly made for somebody else and making um, round peg square hole. And Velvet Winar was one of the first places that I found where just, like, even though, like, and, you know, we've had, like, three games at this point, four if you count the playtest, and we've had some stumbles, we've had some problems, but I've, I've never met a community that has been more dedicated to making it a place where it can be truly transformative despite the negative things may happen, and it's, things are usually pretty pretty well handled when they crop up even in like perfect storm situations where it seems like everything goes wrong all at once because that is the nature of LARP right <laughs> if it's gonna yeah, break it's gonna break big. I remember Shaheen talking about game one and Shaheen been who is the the writer of the root which is Jess's faction um and he's he's a black LARPer he's been LARPing for 20 years now he comes from the Boffer LARP and like he sat down at a table full of black LARPers And then had to go in a bathroom and cry because he was like, this is the first time I've sat with six other black LARPers at a table and just got to have a normal, like talking with my community who all looks like me just LARPing. We're not talking about those issues. We're just, and and I was like, Oh yeah, that happened. Cool. And And we did nothing else that happened. Yeah. I I feel like I had a, sorry. Sorry. I was going to say, it highlights the uh, transformation of, even if it is not, even if the game itself is not built to be transformative, which Velvet Noir is, but there are games that aren't. There are there are experiences that can be transformative around the just event having of a game, you know, back when we could, in, in people's space, do that. Um, and, like, I remember, like, that first first full event that we ran... I was holding hands with virtual strangers during the workshop because they were having the same response of this is the first time I've had this transformative experience of this is a space cultivated for me. And that doesn't happen very often. And now I, you know, take a bullet for these people. But at the time I was like, I don't know who you are, but you look sad. Would you like to hold my hand? (laughs) But, um, it's, uh, it's a very interesting thing because it is a game that's built around safely exploring dark themes and making people have transformative experiences from the ground up. That's what it is for. Mm-hmm. And it can raise, it can bring up some interesting challenges because there aren't very, to my knowledge, there aren't a huge amount of campaign games or large spanning games that are designed with that in mind. I imagine not. There needs to be more. But Chance, you had something to say earlier. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was just thinking I've actually experienced more anti-Semitism at Velvet Noir than I have in real life. Um, but but it was amazing. I mean, it was an amazing scene, and there's there's video of it, which is also amazing. But like I wanted to say as like um you know, when I f- first thought about going to Velvet Noir, like I figured that it would be 
really awesome and transformative for me as a non-binary gender fluid person because I was invited to like wear makeup and wear a dress if I wanted to. And that was really cool and definitely very liberating. But um, I didn't realize the impact of the fact that like never before had I had an in-character Jewish community. And not only an in-character Jewish community, but one in which I was not even the only weird witchy one. So, um, <laughs> like, I feel like I don't really have any local Jewish community that fits me all that well. I don't live in a big enough city to have something, you know, freaky like Jewish renewal. So um, the Jewish community that I, that I really connect the best with is the one from Velvet Noir. And um, I'm so grateful for that. And also, it's been incredibly fun. I, I sometimes uh, have trouble figuring out what I'm going to do, but we... <laughs> We managed to we managed to get a lot of like um, sometimes we just do marriages. Uh, there was a, this one time we did a quickie marriage, <laughs> and then there was that another was time funny. you did a quickie marriage, and <laughs> there was another time. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> I think we spent almost ten minutes talking about Velvet Noir, which yeah, is a powerful and notable yeah. example. But there's the whole wide world of LARPers out there on the other side of the screen. What if someone can't invest all this amazing community design, which is what I'm hearing a, a big important thing? What if they want to make a transformational LARP or play a transformational LARP? You know, when they found uh, online, they want to transformationalize their parlor LARP for six people. Um, what are some options? Uh, or is transformational LARP just ninety percent community design, and people need to hang up their hats? I, mean, I don't think. I think. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh, and I wasn't going to say. I wasn't going to say that it has to strictly be community. It's just that's like the because humans are, for the most part, social creatures. You can find transformation easier when you have a larger community because it is more likely that they're going to influence each other. Um, but it's definitely doable for small games. You know, the, the first time that I had, like, an eye-opening, like, I'm going to sob experience was at a seven-person parlor LARP, like, two intercons ago or something. And it, um, it, is it harder to do with a smaller group or in a shorter time period? Yes. But it's not impossible. And I think it's just making sure that that communication of, what to expect and sprinkling in like a I wish there was like a like a movie rating but like for emotions for LARP like I'm gonna tick off I'm going to the to the NC17 make me cry all the time wanna curl up in the fetal position LARP and uh, maybe next week I'll go to PG-13 LARP you know, emotion. had a one to five tears rating not like uh like levels but like crying like tears. yeah exactly oh. You were saying, Erica? Oh, uh, yeah. I think it is, it's intention and safety design. You can absolutely do that with six people in a room versus 60 or whatever. But if you, those six people have to go in with the, we have the intention of having a deep transformative experience tonight. And we are going to trust each other to do that. So the trust is, here's our safety net. And if you go in, no matter the size of your community, with the intention to transform, some sort of emotional design that will give you a, an emotional platform with whatever transformation you want and the safety that you will let yourself open enough and bleed enough to transform. Oh, no. Oh, John. Oh, uh -oh. he's gone. That's all right. He'll come back. Yeah. But do we I'm have trying to make, uh, like a six-person parlor LARP that you could play. I guess maybe here's my power button would be one that I would think that you could go into... Yeah with the intention of this is going to be really transformative with a small group and really emotional and we can do it in four or five hours. Um, yeah, there's definitely large. I mean, at this, at this point, I think I've, I've played a handful of small ones that tend to be very, very deep emotionally and have that transformative feeling. But like you said, I think the important part is that even more so than on a large scale, when you get to a smaller scale, everybody has to do the buy-in and it's breaking down the, um, that like childlike fear of the invisible audience of being afraid to embarrass yourself. It's making sure that you're not afraid to go there. And I think yeah. that's something that is, is easier to do in a larger group than it is with 
individuals. Because you're not worried about like people standing on the standing on the edges just watching you have this transformative moment when it's in small groups. So it'll be like as long as everybody is in tuned with wanting to do that, you can do that with small parlor lives. I think very simply by being mindful in your design. But you know, one again, then with a group of six people in a few hours, one person who's like, nah, this is stupid. I don't want to do that. It's going to ruin it for everybody. You can't escape that one person in a room of six people. Yeah. But if everybody's mm-hmm. on board with the want to transform and the level of emotion and you trust your safety protocols, yeah, you can do it in a small group. I want to give Chance a, uh, chance, a chance to weigh in. I'm sorry, you've heard that joke 100,000 times. Uh, before I pivot to what has been said about... I'll, I'll give you your chance before I pivot. Um, I think, yeah, one of the strengths of a smaller group, I think, is that you can customize more. Like, you can... Just as you might ask for lines and veils to find out what you don't want to have in your game, you can ask people about their favorite genres or like what kind of themes or dramatic uh, struggles they might want to have. And if some of those answers are the same or similar, that kind of tells you what um, what your what maybe your story should be about if you wanted to be more likely to transform them in a way that interests them. That's a fantastic idea. All right. So we've been talking quite a lot about uh, safety and like the, what, uh, what it gives people. However, there is a uh, well-regarded practitioner of, of something like transformational experiences called Ida Bettadito, who uh, published a thing called Patterns of Transformation and is known for a work called The Night Heron, where people uh, trespassed to an illegal speakeasy in a water tower in New York. Um, and she says that risk is an essential part of a transformation. And so... Do you agree? And if you do agree, can you please square the need for risk and the need for safety? Ooh, I have a catchphrase for this, and I'm so excited. Go! Safety and comfort are not the same thing. They are not. And game designers and developers do 100% owe their players safety. We don't owe you comfort. So risk is necessary for transformation. Risk is also necessary for buy-in. And, you know, to borrow a, a theater term, it's stakes. If you don't have any stakes, you're not going to be invested with what you're doing. If there isn't a chance that you can fail and things can go catastrophically wrong and crop and like make it so that it's worth trying for, you're not going to engage. And risk being necessary means that, hey, you might have to get a little bit uncomfortable. But as long as you trust your game designers and your game designers have kept in mind that they're, that you are safe, you can be uncomfortable. It is the safety net that makes you able to engage with things that make you uncomfortable, to engage in risky behavior. So yeah, risk is 100% necessary. And you can take risks safely. We do it in real life all the time. I have a bar going through my tongue. That's a risk. <laughs> but I did it safely. And LARP is the same way. Make, take your risks, but as long as you can do it safety, and as long as you can willingly make yourself uncomfortable, you will have a better payoff. What they said. Yep. Yeah, the people are quiet because it was true. Ew. Okay, well, um, then let's take it one step further. Um, safety techniques can create a space where people are allowed to sort of opt into risk. Um, what are some ways that designers can uh, encourage participants to, in, I guess, like induce risk? Um, like, because as game designers, we're used to sort of like poking and prodding at the, at the participant experience, like carrots and sticks and more. Um, what, what are some game design tools for inducing risk that are not just like making an open invite with an open hand? They can come or they can go. Um, I noticed one yesterday, actually. I was playtesting uh, Weird Stories. And Weird Stories had a really nice um, setup mechanic where, like, after you choose your characters, which were pre-gen in this case, but not always, I think, mm-hmm. um, you uh, you got um, to choose a, a card to represent the relationship with between yourself and the person to your left. And, um, you know, for, for me, it ended. I, I think I got a couple cards to choose from, and I, I ended up choosing for that person to, to be someone I had known my whole life. But then I looked to my right and the person to my right had chosen that we were rivals and like, yeah, making us rivals. That's definitely a way to, to encourage risk-taking. I was calling him names all session. It was great. Everyone was loving it. 
Um, so, uh, I think like leading questions or um, like really vibrant thematic choices may encourage people to um, to engage more. You mean like Erica? Someone needs to play this really cool badass character, but who? Who would do that for us? Like that level of inducement, or? Uh, well, that seems like that would work, maybe. Yeah, that would work on I, me. Yeah, like Chance just said. <laughs> the workshops that I write for Velvet Horn, Damarung, and a bunch of other things, like we encourage a bunch of risk going into the game by doing like a single one hour workshop where like this whole workshop is about character ties. You are here to make really deep, really emotional character ties with people you might not know, but here you're going to have five minutes to talk about why you've been best friends since you grew up or why you might want to date or if you've joined the communist party together and you got arrested at the same time, like here, we're going to give you, we give you slots of five to seven minutes to make emotionally risky decisions with a person you just met, but talk to them and set them up so you can dive in in character. So just giving some basic tools of like, it's risky to be emotional with somebody, but we're going to give you some tools to set up that emotional connection and a lot of different pregame workshops character building sessions, those things, I think, give people ways to dive in and take risks. And practicing safety tools. When I see somebody use their safety tools, like, okay, check-in or red light, green light, whatever, if I see them in use and I know somebody can go to them, I will automatically take more risks with that person because I know that they are risk-aware. And I know that they can tap out if I'm going so deep. But if we've never practiced a safety tool in a workshop ever, I don't know if these people actually understand how to tap out or not. So I will be scared to push them as far as I want to go. So doing basic practice of your safety and pre-game emotional connection set up and whatever you're doing, I think lets a lot more transformative experiences happen. I've and, got one. Um, oh. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Um. Okay, uh, this is to this is for to to forewarn us that soon Laura will pop in with the questions from chat. But we're going to wrap up this topic first. Yeah. Um, one extremely tiny facilitator practice that I learned from Alex Roberts uh, in a draft version of the LARP Pop, a LARP about balloon fetishists that people can get in the uh, Honey and Hot Wax anthology, has uh, specific facilitator instructions um, that are basically like carefully calmly honor people's autonomy. So in my game, Glamorous Night, a LARP about fairies and wizards healing from trauma, um, whenever someone sits down from the circle or takes a stretch break or modifies a technique, I instruct the facilitator to point that out and thank them and be like, what they've done now is them uh, treating the player as more important than the game, which really illustrates this principle. So thanking people for asking questions, thanking people for taking care of themselves, helps everyone sort of release a big breath and trust each other just a little bit more. That's my facilitator trick. But let's hear from Jess. Um, I, was, I was going to go back to agree with what Erica said about making sure, like when you see people using their safety tools, it makes you more able to take risks. And it, it, it also brings in the idea that I am a big fan of the idea of inherent risk when you're playing a certain situation or certain game or scenario that everybody has opted into and being clear about what that is. And it becomes, I don't like the term just opt in. I'm like, opt in, opt out. The reason why it is opt in, opt out is because there is a risk that you are initially willing to opt in when you take a step into the sandbox. If you are walking into a game set in um, the 1700s in Barbados, you are opting in to certain things that are going to be really uncomfortable for people to deal with. And if you don't want to deal with that, it is your responsibility for your own safety to opt out. Just like it would be your responsibility for your own safety, where if you accidentally crossed your own boundary or stayed in a scene that made you uncomfortable and require help, you are in charge of going to find whoever the safety coordinator is to help. If you are thirsty and I hand you a glass of water, it is your job to drink it. So you have a small amount of inherent risk that, um, oh yeah, drink water also, if we have water for drinking. <laughs> um, uh, there's some inherent risk that is just around, and giving people the tools and the ability to opt out, as well as opt in, is very important. 
And I didn't realize how important it was until about a year ago, literally almost exactly a year ago. I was at a game that I'm not going to name because I did not enjoy it, where they, despite it being an entire weekend-long game that was character-driven, had no safety mechanics at a workshop. And it was a lot of players from a lot of different backgrounds who all kind of had an idea of safety mechanics. Like, we'd all play games. We know what safety mechanics are. But it's like trying to speak a bunch of different languages. You know, if I'm if I if my safety mechanics are English and somebody else's safety mechanics are German and another person's are Dutch, I mean, kind of get it. But I don't need kind of when I'm trying to engage. I need to know that it's understood and other yeah. people need to know that as well. And safety mechanics aren't necessarily designed always to protect the people who don't like to go deep. They're for the people who do. They're for the people who will play villains, who will, you know, take on the role of if you're doing something cathartic that may have to do someone's someone's trauma, being the traumatizer, being the person who is the bad guy. And if you don't have that kind of buy-in, there's going to be hesitation, no one's gonna be able to go deep, and you're going to have a worse experience. Which is why I'm like, yes, making sure that the safety mechanics are communicated and taught and used freely is what gets people to to buy into the risks of things. This is a fantastic point. Thank you so much, Jess. You've just coined a concept we call Rackle, risk-aware consensual LARP. Amazing. And so, because I swore a grim oath to Laura47, uh, she will now hit us with questions, but we three Jabberjaws will be silent and give Chance the right of first refusal to whatever this first amazing question is. Hit us, Laura. Thank you. All right, we have here from Benning Esser-Itis. How do you cross-bleed and lead into your trauma without feeling like you're exploiting the other players or the game itself for your benefit? It's a good question. It's funny, I was going to ask a similar question earlier. Like, when, if ever, is it okay to play for bleed or play for personal transformation in a game that isn't built for that, and especially without telling other people what you're doing? I don't think it's wise. I think, like, at bare minimum, you should have a buddy who's keeping an eye on you if you're going to try to do that, but, like, probably the staff should also be aware. Um, and, I mean, if you're at a game that's designed for transformation and you're trying to do something totally different from what the game's designed for, also probably not a great idea. Um, I'm hoping that answers the question. Would someone else like to answer it, too? I have acquired opinions. Uh, I'll be brief. Um, yeah. So when someone starts a new romantic relationship, how soon should they disclose all their baggage from all previous relationships and all relevant traumas? Like, probably they should get there at some point, but they're not necessarily obligated to hit it all, like, right on the first Tinder date. Uh, I feel like there's probably some in-between of, like, all disclosure to the LARP staff. And by the way, do you know, can you trust this LARP staff to have safety techniques like that uh, mentioned LARP that Jess mentioned? Um I think there's probably a balance associated with it. And I really like Chance's idea of having a buddy. I, um, my other opinion is that uh, trying to cross bleed and trying to bleed, like force bleed and go deep is very similar to dating. You may not necessarily have to disclose everything that you're trying to do, but if you have trauma related to what you're trying to do, you're going to want to make sure that everybody who is involved knows that that's what you're doing. Um, workshops are a good place. If they have workshops, workshops are a good place to disclose this. Just, hey, heads up, I'm playing a character that's dealing with this thing that mirrors something I'm doing in real life. It's going to be really transformative and deep for me. If you don't want to engage with that, you know, whatever your get out of there mechanic is, no hard feelings, be sure to do it. If you would like to enthusiastically help me do this, uh, yes. <laughs> like, um, it's, it's, you don't want to find your catharsis or your gratification at somebody else's expense. And the way to make sure you do that is to make sure that everybody who is involved is aware and is willing to help. If they are not willing to help, find other people. That being said, I mean, catharsis and transformation can happen anytime someone plays a character that interests them. It's oh, like, it may, sure. it may not, it may not yeah. be deliberate. And in that case, like, what happens happens, I suppose. And then yeah. you, try to, you try to help yeah. them afterwards. My, my last note on that is therapy, not therapy, or therapeutic, not therapy. 
you can, I know so many gamers who have tried on a different gender or realized they were gender fluid because they decided to play a character who was a different gender than they were. And they were like, oh, this feels better. That is different than like, I just got out of a really physically abusive relationship and I need to like work on it. So I'm going to go into a gaming physically abusive relationship and not tell the other person that I'm specifically triggering my traumas trying to work on this. So it's different, like, if there is an actual traumatic thing you should be tackling in therapy, and you try to tackle it through gaming without telling anybody, I think that's shitty. If you're trying on different parts of your personality, and just trying to develop yourself as a person, that's different. So yeah, there's different levels. It's the, it can be therapeutic, but don't make it your only therapy. Talk to a therapist and let everybody know what's going on if you're working on some deep trauma stuff. And if it's a situation where you find the catharsis happens organically or that you lead without meaning to um mm. just check in with people afterward if it got a little intense or if somebody got upset apologize it's not <laughs> there's no egg on your face if after a very intense scene or a transformative scene that you didn't mean for it to be transformative to quickly out of game someone be like hey off game that went places i'm really happy with where it went that went places i didn't intend for it are you okay? Did I upset you? And if so, I apologize. How can I make up for it? It's mm-hmm. not, that, not that hard, in my opinion. With, with our last 10 minutes, let's hit a couple, One, at least one more question. What have you got for us, Laura? Okay, from D. Marshall B. What questions should you ask yourself to prep to make an experience more transformative? Thank you, Marshall, for this question. Why? is usually the question that I go into most scenarios. Why, why do I want this to be transformative? Why am I playing this game for it to be transformative? Like those are, those are the big ones because the motivations that you have going in is go- are going to give you clearer and deeper idea of what you're looking for. If the question is, why am I going into this situation to be transformative? Where I'll be playing, I don't, I don't know, the hottest person in the room. If the answer is because I never feel like I'm the hottest person in the room, okay, now you know and you can deal into that. But if you go into something and it's like, oh, why am I accessing uh, things that I know, like the example that Eric went, an abusive relationship that I've been in before, and the answer is because I don't feel like I can get over it without this, you know you probably shouldn't engage in that kind of thing. So making sure that you understand your own why is going to lead to a lot of a lot of um, clarity for what you're doing and how to navigate it safely. Jess is just given the fun size method. If you want a full size method, Janiyah Kemper's emancipatory bleed articles on places like nordiclarp.org offer some more rigorous structure. I've never met Janiyah and I feel like you need to buy them a drink oh, because amazing. I accidentally, accidentally stuff all the time. Uh, go I ahead, Jess. That Living Games was amazing. Oh. Go ahead, um, Eric. Uh, Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to quit poking at people while you just talk. Erica, do you want to go? No, go ahead, you. Um, I think I lost my train of thought. You go ahead. Okay, all right. Um, my, after the why, my is how am I going to loop other people into this? I never find stories matter unless it's with other people. Like, the, LARPing is a collective social hobby. If I'm playing my story alone in a corner, that's fine. But no, no other people are going to see it. And for me, it's not as transformative if I'm, as it would be if I was doing it with four other people. So it's how can I get other people engaged in the story that I want to tell and enhance their stories through it? That's the thing I'm always asking myself. Um, I, think for, I think for me, it's, it centers around character creation to a large extent. Like... Um, like what am what am I what is my goal with this character? What am I trying to accomplish, or uh, what kind of experience am I trying to have with this character? Um, like I've definitely used characters to try on things like personality traits, or like openly being more like openly uh, presenting more queer, but also openly presenting as pagan. Before I was really comfortable doing that in other situations, um, and I think like when when even I meant to bring this up when we were talking about bleed, like. Um, you know, trying something on in LARP to see if it feels comfortable for your real life is like one of the most wonderful types of bleed that Erica also talked about and has been very important for me and I definitely advocate it. 
it's it seems to be pretty safe as long as you're not like I don't know trying on stuff that's bad for you. <laughs> I guess. Uh, Sarah Lynn Bowman wrote a book uh, that uses Jungian psychological methods to talk about doing shadow play uh, in LARP as well as sort of the uh, what's the word like aspirational aspect play of uh, Chance's dad being Gandhi for a minute. Sure. The way that I answer this question is from the perspective of a designer. If I'm trying to get an experience to be transformative, then I'm thinking about the debrief. Uh, as, an as an educator who uses educational LARP, a debrief is where young people's uh, delicious, malleable minds that are very concrete allow them to be like, oh, I can do this thing with suspenders in, in Velvet Noir 20s, and I can do this thing with suspenders in my real life by connecting it through the debrief. Like The classic education model is, what just happened, so what about that, and how does this apply to the real world? And there's a number of ways it can be done in LARP. Um, one example that was particularly strong at the end of Just Hold Love in USA 2017, uh, a LARP about uh, friendship, death, uh, and uh, survival in the AIDS crisis. We brought in a number of context speakers to talk about cancer, to talk about living with HIV today, to talk about living with HIV in the, in the, in the 80s, to sort of ground people's fictional experience in the real lived experiences of the people who are really there so people could be like i strongly empathize with that experience and recognize that i didn't have that experience literally and they can like take that learning away with them so what can designers do to add that transformational uh stuff right into their games with a hot tip from you folks pre-build your debrief like do an intentional yeah. debrief I feel like Make Velvet Noir is the first game that I've actually been able to, and we made the debrief optional. We didn't even tell the players they had to stay for it. Just 90% of the players stay. Um, that the first campaign game where we are like, no, I've designed a debrief and you're going to do it because we need to process this experience in ways. Don't make your debrief an optional. Oh, some people need to talk about this after, I guess maybe we'll sit around and design your debrief with mm -hmm. the intention of processing what you want them to get out of this experience. Yeah, absolutely. And something that I've noticed, so like I, I come from a LARPing background a little bit backward from most people where I didn't start with campaign games or buffer games. I started with single weekend contained high character games and like worked backward. Mm -hmm. So what I have found is that people who have these other backgrounds who are looking for those kinds of um, emotional and character-driven things, they would just debrief each other at afters. And I'm like, but why don't you just do this structured? Um, and that's like, make sure that your debrief is structured. I'm also a big proponent of bespoke characters. Tell your game runners what kind of character you want to play and what you're trying to access, and let us write them for you. That way you're guaranteed to have an in with the game and that you're going to fit instead of having to deal with some of the, uh, the negative emotions that come from, I made this character and I don't think it's playable anymore. Um, and that can be another thing that can enhance the transformative nature of games. Fascinating. With mere three minutes remaining, we need to do a quick whip round where we each talk about something where Erica goes first, and then we do a whip round where we talk about um, something we're taking away from with, with us from this panel. And that's how you debrief a panel. But first, let's hear from Erica. No, I was going to say, we get one more question. We don't. That's the question. There is one more question, but it must die so that this panel can end right. Yes. Something I'm taking away. Hmm. Uh, taking away from this panel, it, for me, is going to be a trust... Trust your LARPers, explain the risks, and trust your LARPers to take them. As long as you've informed everybody, and you've been very honest and open, and you've given them some tools, let your LARPers live in the uncomfortable space, which is a really hard thing to do sometimes, because I just want to protect them like a mama bird. <laughs> Be like, no, fly, feel kind of uncomfortable and a little bit miserable, but safe. That's all that matters. Trust your LARPers to take risks. Mm-hmm. Oh, am I up? By all means. Um, you know, I think, yeah, uncertainty is important to me. And I think um, some of the most important learning in LARP comes from 
uh, playing someone whose whose viewpoints or personality or skills are just so totally different from yours that you maybe gain empathy for a, a totally different kind of person. So I just want to encourage people, it, you know, if if it feels safe enough, know your limits, but like if it feels safe enough, or if it feels like it might be safe enough, try this because you'll probably learn a whole lot. Jess, you have 30 seconds. I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to straight up steal what you were talking about from Just Little Love and the idea of bringing people lived experiences are what we are playing with and making sure that the history is accurately described in order to increase empathy while acknowledging that you are not actually experiencing it. I'm just going to add in my cap and use that liberally. Perfect. With our last eight seconds, let me thank you for attending Metatopia and seeing this panel. Good night, everyone. Have a good one. Night. Bye.